This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Richard Davidson. He's a neuroscientist based at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I spoke with him on May 24, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station WPR in Madison, Wisconsin. This interview is included in our show, Investigating Healthy Minds. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. already hooked up to you, so I'll talk to the ISDN and let Great. them know that you're Do you know how long it's... Um, on our <laughs> calendar, we have until 345. Okay. But I don't really mean I'll take that. Right, I'll talk to him. Is yeah. it, can you get me a glass of water? No Plus problem. Thank Definitely. you so much. Should I put on the headphones? Mm-hmm, sure. Okay. Get that a little closer to me. Does that work? Okay. NPR, your guest is here. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Hello? Hello. Oh, hi. Do you hear me? Yes. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, it's Richard Davidson. (laughs) Um, Welcome. Thank you. I heard that they're getting you some water. They are. That's good. Yes, thank you. Um, How long will this go for? um, We'll we'll shoot for an hour. Does that sound all right? That sounds good. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know you're a busy person. Do you have any questions for me before we start? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I've, you know, you've you've come up so often in my conversations across the years. Uh, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who intersect with your work. Uh, Esther Sternberg and Mathieu Ricard and I don't know. I, I mean, I, I was thinking there's there's a whole list of them before I came. <laughs> now, I, I did come up and introduce myself. I don't know if you remember at the Emory event. I was there. I moderated uh, some of those plenary sessions when uh-huh. His Holiness was at Emory and back in the fall. Right. Yes, I, I do vaguely remember. Yeah, yes. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chris, how are we doing? Do you need us to do some sound checks? I have a little more from Mr. Davidson. Okay. Um, why don't you tell me something mundane, like what you had for breakfast? I had my cereal concoction that I usually have. Oh, tell me. What's oh, in it? it's... Uh, it's actually a porridge that we make with um, uh, amaranth and millet and barley and I'm not sure what other grains are in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, it's quite good. Do you have it with yogurt or something like that? I have it with, I have a sweet tooth, so I had it with delicious Wisconsin organic maple syrup. Mm, that sounds great. Okay. All right. I think we can go. So let's okay. just let's plunge right in. Um, I want to start where I, where I start with everyone, just to hear, uh, it, it, just ask you: Was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood that you grew up with? Uh, well, I grew up in a Jewish family uh, uh, and went to a Jewish day school uh, for the first nine years of my education. Uh, but I wouldn't really; it certainly wasn't spiritual. And uh, it wasn't particularly religious either, although it certainly had some fringes of religion, but not not really uh, in any with any kind of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So you know, I've read, I've read several accounts um, where you've talked about or written about how 
you've had this lifelong conviction that went back to your teenage years that the mind, here's one way you said it, underlies all that is important for flourishing and happiness. Um, where, mm-hmm. You know, where did that where, where did that interest in the mind come from? Do you know? Well, uh, I, I I actually don't know exactly, although uh, it just seemed to make a lot of sense to me early on in my life that um, uh, our minds were really crucial to our uh, how we related to everything around us, and uh, that we uh, actually had an opportunity by uh, altering our minds to uh, alter uh, our uh, the, our realities and and the world in which we lived. And uh, I know it, uh, it you know it sounds a little trite, but uh, uh, the that conviction was present um, really uh, from high school on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, it's something that certainly motivated me. Uh, in college and and, uh, and 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 subsequently, but it's it's interesting to me that you also always w- were interested in I- investigating it, thinking about it also in terms of science, right? Or is that true in terms of biology? Yes, somehow? <clears throat> it was. It was. I I had a passion for science since I was a kid, and um, you know I I was involved in lots of uh, science related activities. I was a ham radio operator when I was nine or ten years old and um, built uh, electronic components and um, mm. uh, and volunteered in a sleep laboratory when I was in high school <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, put on uh, electrodes and cleaned electrodes uh, uh, in the afternoons. Uh, uh, and uh, I remember very distinctly subscribing to Science News, which is a kind of popular but serious um, summary of uh, science e- that comes out each week, and I read it religiously, um, starting in high school. And I used to actually cut out little articles and file them away, and uh, uh, it was just part of my life uh, from from very early on. And then, was it your um, experience of meeting people who meditated, going to India, that? That was that the first time that you made that connection between your interest in the mind and this whole realm of contemplative practice? It was. Uh, it was. It was seeing that uh, there were these people who just seemed like wonderful people. They they were really attractive to be around, and uh, they had an interest uh, in common in spirituality and meditation, and uh, that. Uh, certainly provided the initial impetus for me to explore in this realm. Mm-hmm. And you've said, you've actually put it this way, that you, you it was not until the 90s that you kind of came out of the closet with your interest in, in actually um, exploring, pursuing contemplative practice um, together with science. Uh, that's true, although uh, uh, it, it was the case that in the early part of my career, uh, uh, just uh, toward the end of graduate school and a few years after, uh, I actually published a few papers on meditation, mm. uh, but uh, it was very clear that the times were not right to pursue them. Uh, and uh, uh, various senior mentors that I had at that time in the academic arena made it very clear 
to me that this was not a very good way to uh, to begin a career if I wanted a successful career in science. Mm. Uh, and so while those articles were always on my vita, uh, I never um, sort of called them out or um, drew anyone's attention to them. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of my scientific colleagues up until the um, mid-1990s had no idea that I... Uh, had uh, a strong interest or any interest in this area for hmm. that matter. And by that you mean in this interest in spirituality, meditative practice, contemplative practice? Yes. I mean, yes. you know, I did go back and look at um, a book that you published um, together with someone else named Davidson in 1980. Was he related to you? Julian? No. no. Uh, unrelated. Okay. Um, Psycho- wonderful... Psychobiology of Consciousness and... Uh, I guess that's when you were still in the closet. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, the tone of that is so different. Um, and it starts with, I mean, it was a book you edited. It wasn't all written by you. But it starts with basically an acknowledgement that the relationship of consciousness to biology, that there's little progress has been made. But what's, what's so interesting also to me was it's all about e- EEG biofeedback, that the tools seems so primitive now. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. It was 1980. Um, right, exactly. And, and that's, that was actually part of my decision to, uh, in fact, not pursue research on the neuroscience of meditation in the early part of my career because uh, I clearly perceived the tools that were available to us in those days as very coarse and primitive mm-hmm. and uh, uh, really uh, insufficiently sensitive to capture uh, what I was experiencing as a practitioner. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was pedestrian research on meditation. Right. So that's pre-MRI. Um, yes, very much pre-MRI. It was actually in many ways pre, pre-neuroscience. Really? Well, n- neuroscience as a as a identifiable field really started around 1976. Um, And I, that's when I ended graduate school. And I mean, it seems to me also that uh, a term that, that is very common uh, also among lay people in our culture is this idea of being, that we're hardwired for things. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I would say one of the things, this is just one way I would put it, is that one of the things that you are suggesting in your research over time is that we can also rewire. Um, but was it all, when When did we did science and uh, popular culture start thinking? Was this also around that time about hardwiring um, when genetics took some different turns? Has, has this been a parallel development? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of the behavioral sciences and the intersection of behavioral sciences with biology, uh, there are some interesting trends. In, in the 1960s was the heyday of behaviorism yeah. when uh, the environment was actually uh, uh, emphasized as being the um, primary cause of our behavior, and there was no attention to the mind and no attention to biology, and um, uh, the, the pendulum was, was very far uh, to the extreme of, of considering what is inside the head to be really irrelevant. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and we begin as uh, a tabula rasa, uh, an empty slate, uh, and uh, the environment uh, through conventional mechanisms of learning um, 
uh, determines who we are. Uh, and then uh, there were all kinds of questions and problems uh, that were raised with behaviorism uh, and uh, the cognitive revolution in psychology uh, began to emerge. And uh, around the same time, or perhaps a little afterwards, uh, the role of genetics and behavior um, uh, became more uh, well-developed and well-characterized, particularly studies simply showing that um, there's a, a, a sizable fraction of our behavior which seems to um, um, be uh, uh, under heritable uh, influence. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in many ways, I think the pendulum swung uh, uh, in the opposite extreme for quite some time, where um, uh, everything was attributed to our genes, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, there were uh, voices among public intellectuals who were calling into question any programs, for example, to um, like Head Start and other programs to help disadvantaged individuals um, because uh, the claim was that, it, that it's all in our genes anyway and there's nothing much we can do about it. Right. Uh, that, that's a, a bit of a caricature, but it's, um, you know, I think it really does contain the, the kernel of truth in, in some of those statements. Uh, and I think that uh, what modern neuroscience is teaching us is that, in fact, there is a lot of plasticity. Uh, that change is indeed possible, and um, uh, and that there is a balance of uh, uh, of contributions from nature and nurture, and separating them in this rigid way in in either of these extremes is probably uh, much too simplistic. Um, but uh, uh, it does seem, I think, that uh, the evidence is more and more strongly in favor of the importance of. Uh, environmental influences in shaping um, brain function and structure, and even shaping the expression of our genes. Uh, and mm. so mm. Uh, it's not that genes are unimportant, it's just that they're much more dynamic mm. uh, than we previously understood. So is it right that in 1992, um, the Dalai Lama sent you a fax inviting you to apply your ideas to the study, to study the brains of monks? Is that right? Uh, yes, kind he invited of in that category me to, of to, EEGs. <laughs> to to come meet with him in India mm -hmm. and uh, uh, to uh, explore the possibility of uh, using the tools of of what then was modern neuroscience to study uh, what might have changed in the brains of uh, these long-term meditation practitioners. And I mean, you're you're now known as a pioneer in this field of affective neuroscience, which is. Not, which is n now I think larger than studying the brains of Olympic meditators, but um, but began with that. I mean, just tell me what that encounter um, and learning and and that study. What did that open up for you? Um, well, uh, first, uh, the, the affective neuroscience. Just to clarify terms, is a phrase that uh, has been used to describe research on the neuroscience of emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there, there's another hybrid discipline that we're uh, uh, cultivating called contemplative neuroscience, right. which is um, the study of uh, the impact of contemplative practices on the brain. Uh, and so I think you're really more referring to the latter, to, to contemplative neuroscience. I've been um, very much involved in, in both of those. Uh, 
Uh, but when I met the Dalai Lama for the first time in 1992, that was uh, a meeting that uh, I, I think is difficult to overestimate in terms of its importance for my career and for my life. Uh, and uh, uh, the Dalai Lama challenged me at that meeting in a very direct way and said that, uh, uh, you know, you've been using the tools of, of modern neuroscience to study qualities like depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and fear and disgust. Why can't you use those same tools to study qualities like kindness and compassion? Right. And uh, there really was no good answer to that question other than that the study of kindness and compassion is hard. But uh, it was hard when we began to study fear and anxiety. Right. And uh, we've made, uh, as a field, a tremendous amount of progress in understanding the brain mechanisms that underlie those um, uh, emotional qualities. And so uh, uh, I made a commitment to the Dalai Lama on that day in 1992, and I made a commitment to myself that uh, I was going to do everything I could to put compassion on the scientific map. Uh, and, um, uh, and and indeed, I've, I've really uh, very much reoriented my research uh, uh, from that point on and uh, the work on these virtuous qualities and on the impact of contemplative practices to cultivate these qualities has assumed a uh, more and more significant chunk of my uh, professional life. I think you've also noted that whereas um, science had developed and has developed a very nuanced vocabulary on negative affects like or, or depression, hostility, um, that that there wasn't even a very sophisticated, there wasn't at all a sophisticated way of talking about or thinking about or analyzing something like compassion. That That's true, and I would say there still isn't a very sophisticated vocabulary. Uh, uh, there was a time, uh, and in fact it's still represented in this way in many um, reviews and textbooks, uh, there, there, there was a time when uh, uh, the uh, the repertoire of human emotions was described, and it was described as uh, six emotions, um, uh, all of which are either neutral or negative, <laughs> and then there's just one positive emotion. Uh, and and what was was uh, that compassion? No, that it, was happiness. Happiness. I mean, the, oh, yeah. The no, class. That's, that's the simple. Cl- yeah, the classic six are happiness, fear, anger, disgust, um, right. uh, sadness, and surprise. Hmm. Those are the six that have been classically studied as so-called uh, discrete basic emotions. So surprise can be either positive or negative. The others are negative, And then there's one positive emotion. Uh, and when you know mm-hmm. the when we talk to the the people in the contemplative traditions about this, uh, I mean they just are amazed that yeah. uh, uh, that this is the best you can do in Western psychology. Right. <laughs> I mean, how do you? What's your working definition of compassion then, at this point? Uh, my working definition of compassion is that it is a uh, a motivational state that. Uh, uh, is associated with the with the propensity to relieve the suffering of others. Hmm. 
and but it's also I think you you suggest it's not that it right so that it's 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 not just feeling oriented that it is also has action potential yes exactly it's it's both a feeling quality and an associated action disposition mm-hmm. as we would say um I mean you've also said that very much like language, you think that we're born with a capacity to be compassionate. I do, and I, I, I think it's very similar to uh, uh, to the way language is conceptualized as part of our innate repertoire. Uh, if 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 it is part of our innate repertoire, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically expressed in in any environment. Uh, There have been, for example, case studies of feral children who have been raised in the wild uh, in the absence of a linguistic community. And we know that in those children, uh, they actually don't develop a normal capacity for language. And in the same way, uh, I think it is with compassion. I think compassion requires uh, a, a nurturant community for it to arise, be nourished, be cultivated. Uh, And in the absence of that kind of nourishing, supportive early environment, uh, I think even though it is an innate capacity, um, it can be stifled. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that, uh, you know, people often ask, well, if compassion is an innate quality, why does it have to be cultivated? Mm-hmm. And it's like asking the question, if, if language is in a capacity, why, why is it necessary for us to be raised in a linguistic community? Um, right. But the way language gets passed on is, it, our mother tongues at least, is not so much people telling us about it, but just doing it around us. And then we and I think it it's And I think it's the identical mm-hmm. uh, situation for compassion. The best way to to teach compassion is to embody it, mm-hmm. not to teach it explicitly, but simply to be it. Uh, and it's through the being that the individuals in the vicinity of that indivi- of that um, person who's exuding compassion will um, will implicitly understand and be affected by it, and will learn from it. So and that's what's mm-hmm. what's so delicious about being in the presence of the Dalai Lama. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so I do want to get this connection right between the contemplative neuroscience and the affective neuroscience because it, it seems to me, but I want you to correct me if I'm not getting this right, that you learned things from these meditators, which you, you are then now applying to, um, to regular human beings and also to disordered emotions, to some of these negative states, uh, but you, I mean, I think, think the title of your center, the Center for Inges- Investigating Healthy Minds, points at the fact that you're start, you're, you see this as the cultivation of positive qualities rather than just this focus on eradicating negative qualities. So now nuance what I just said and tell me the yes. t- tour story. Well, I, I think your uh, characterization is, is quite accurate. Uh, we start from the conjecture that uh, health is not simply the absence of illness. Uh, and uh, that's true for both mental health as well as physical health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, and so the cultivation of positive qualities doesn't simply mean 
the elimination of, of negative qualities. Uh, uh, and so that's why the, 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 the name of our center was very intentionally chosen. And um, we're interested in what positive qualities um, constitute a healthy mind. And uh, once uh, those are identified, how can we nurture them so that they become uh, um, more prominently and more widely expressed uh, in our culture? Uh, and uh, uh, those are the, the, the central questions which motivate uh, both the basic research as well as the uh, translational research uh, in our center. And, you know, again, so what you learned from studying the brains of monks and meditators, you learned things about neuroplasticity, which really were very new, right, and exciting for the entire field of neuroscience. I mean, how does that, tell me, tell me what that is, what that, why that's meaningful, and how then you how that applies to this work you do with um, other people? Well, the work with long-term practitioners that, we're, that we've done as well as that we're continuing to do uh, is important because uh, it sort of defines the further reaches of human um, plasticity and transformation. Which just means that our brains can change, right? I mean, simply uh, put. Simply put, yeah, and sort of the, the further extremes of, of brain changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so when we study these experts, we see things in their brain that have not been reported before in human brains. So like what? Um, well, they're, you know, they're sort of technical, if you will, but the, they, they, for the neuroscience community, they're very meaningful. Uh, there is a brain rhythm that is called gamma, Mm-hmm. Uh, oscillations and gamma oscillations are recorded uh, through the electrical activity of the brain, and they are fast frequency oscillations. They oscillate approximately 40 times per second. Uh, and when you observe gamma oscillations in a uh, a normal conventional person who has not gone through this kind of training. Uh, you see the oscillations for very short periods of time, typically one second or less. Uh, and they're associated with specific kinds of learning or perception. Uh, they often occur when different elements of a percept are bound together. And so what I mean by that is um, uh, a lot of our perception involves combining elements from different sensory modalities mm-hmm. uh, and integrating them together in uh, a unified um, experience. And uh, those different elements need some mechanism to bind them together. And gamma oscillations are thought to be at least one mechanism through which these different elements are bound together. But uh, that kind of binding occurs very episodically and in a very punctate way in the brain. Uh, what we observed in the long-term practitioners during certain kinds of meditation, particularly meditation on compassion, uh, was that these gamma oscillations uh, persisted for a much longer period of time than has ever been reported. They persisted for minutes mm-hmm. continuously at very high amplitude. Uh, and this was just something that had not been observed before. Do we know uh, and, how those that kind of gamma ray oscillation how that expresses itself in personality or in life or how does we that don't uh, okay. we we don't at this point mm-hmm. we we know a little bit about 
what the phenomenological correlates are in these long-term practitioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the clearest phenomenological correlate is um, a quality of clarity of their perception. Hmm. Uh, uh, and so uh, one of the, um, uh, the sort of operating um, intuitions that we have uh, in the long-term practitioners is that they are very good at um, providing granular accounts of their experience because they spend a lot of time interrogating their own minds. Right. And actually the word meditation in Sanskrit, one of its meanings is comes from the word familiarization. Uh, right. And we can think of these individuals as being just utterly familiar in a very deep way with their own mind. Okay. Uh, and that familiarization allows them to provide very granular reports. And when they give those reports, it turns out that um, they uh, could scale uh, the extent to which uh, their experience has this quality of clarity. Uh, And uh, that quality of clarity turns out to be very highly correlated with uh, the presence of these gamma oscillations. Uh, The more clarity, the more gamma. Okay. So then back to how you, how these insights, maybe maybe that one sounds kind of mysterious still, but that and other things you learned about neuroplasticity, how you, I mean, you're now applying, you're now doing work, um, I assume applying some of that to, with children, with also with affective and anxiety disorders, with things like ADD, with autism, with asthma. So mm-hmm. tell me how what you've learned in all that then changes these these approaches, what you're developing here. Well, um, one of the things about all of these uh, different conditions uh, that you describe, like mm-hmm. ADHD, anxiety disorders, affective disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, autism, uh, they all involve... Uh, 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 differences in certain aspects of brain function and uh, uh, the uh, kind of simple-minded idea which motivates this is that we know now that these contemplative practices can change brain function uh, and brain structure and uh, uh, if that's true then um, perhaps we can use these, these methods and it's really um, a family of methods to uh, uh, change uh, uh, the mind uh, and through that change the brain uh, in ways that may be beneficial for uh, helping individuals who are suffering from some of these disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the, the simple-minded um, uh, intuition which underlies this. Uh, and so uh, we also hope that we can use some of these methods preventatively. And so uh, uh, that uh, is really um, uh, behind a lot of the work we're doing with kids because we feel that if we can teach kids to uh, some of these simple strategies, uh, they will have a toolbox from which they can um, select to help them with adversity that they uh, may encounter as, as they go along. Uh, and so we're actually doing work now starting in preschool mm-hmm. um, with four and five-year-olds to uh, 
um, provide them with uh, these kinds of tools to train them in these ways uh, and then to follow them over the course of development to see if learning these strategies early in life can make a difference uh, in um, uh, facilitating a more positive trajectory of development and minimizing uh, deleterious outcomes. And you've just started those those projects, so you don't have a lot of years of data behind them at this point. Right. We've just started them, but I must say that it's been uh, amazingly gratifying hmm. to uh, to just anecdotally see their their um, their effects. I was in uh, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a a kind of a small, closely knit community in many ways, and uh, uh, I was in um, uh, a uh, uh, actually a Trader Joe's uh, not too long ago, and ran into a parent who was a parent of uh, one of the uh, preschool children who is part of our study. And I didn't know this person, but right. they they knew who I was, and they just came over to me. Uh, and wanted to tell me two things. They wanted to thank me for what we were doing because they've noticed um, positive changes in their kid. Uh, and they also wanted to know where they can learn these methods because uh, they found that uh, it was clearly so helpful to, to their child. Hmm. And so when you say there's a family of methods, um, I mean, is some kind of contemplative or meditative practice always involved? And, and what, else, what, what else is in this family of methods, this toolbox? Well, uh, there, the, the idea here is simply that there are literally hundreds of different kinds of meditation practices. Yeah. Uh, and so often in the West, we have this idea that meditation is one thing and that um, every kind of meditation will produce the same kinds of effects. And that's just simply not true. Uh, uh, the um, contemplative traditions from which we draw uh, have literally hundreds of different kinds of practices, and they are designed uh, for different kinds of people or for a person in different uh, situations. Uh, they are understood within their own traditions uh, to produce uh, different effects, and uh, biologically and behaviorally in the laboratory, they produce different effects. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the way I often talk about it to lay audiences is that the word meditation is kind of like the word sports. Um, there, we, there are okay. many different kinds of sports. They can be performed. Some are more active. Some are less active. Some are performed in groups. Some not. And, and it, the same is true of meditation. It's a big umbrella term. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, so what would you do with young children like that? Well, in, with young children, our work is focused on two kinds of practices, two classes of practices. Within, within each class, there are a number of different types of practice, but the two classes are one is designed to cultivate kindness, and the other is designed to cultivate mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and by mindfulness here, we mean moment-by-moment um, -moment non-judgmental attention or awareness. Okay. And kind of yeah, attention and self self awareness, right? And it was since leading to kind of a, a kind of self regulation. Self awareness, mm -hmm. but also other awareness. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. not not just self awareness, mm -hmm. but certainly 
self-awareness would be included, including awareness of what's going on in one's body, mm-hmm. which can be very helpful in understanding what emotions you're experiencing, um, but also very much uh, uh, focused on on other, being aware of others, being aware of one's environment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there are meditations on sound uh, that are done uh, to help children learn to pay attention to not just the inside, but the outside as mm. well. Mm. And what about the kindness? How do you how do you cultivate that? Well, you know, it's cultivating that in children is a ver- we use very different approaches than we do with adults. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of props that are used. There are books uh, uh, that we use as as external props. Uh, there are um, opportunities for sharing. Uh, actual opportunities, uh, uh, as well as more um, classical uh, um, mental kinds of training where um, the children uh, envision uh, other kids in their classroom and uh, 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 envision times when they may have been Hmm. um, not feeling so good and um, generating the wish to help, uh, help them be happier. Uh, and help relieve their suffering. You're, you're teaching them to be reflective. I mean, right? That would be one way to talk about what's going on in both of those instances with mindfulness and kindness. Yes, uh, there's definitely a reflective piece in each. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I know you're also working with adolescents, which is very interesting. And I would think that then the methods would be different. I mean, that's a tumultuous time for the human brain and mind, isn't it? I mean, so how how do you adapt this? Um, yeah, those are all wonderful questions. And, um, you know, we're, th- this is a stage where I think we and others need to do a lot of tinkering yeah. uh, and to figure out exactly what may work uh, um, best. But also, I quickly uh, add that I don't think there's any one strategy which is going to work best for all individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think one size is going to fit all. And I think that one of the goals of this kind of scientific work is to better match specific individual differences in cognitive and emotional style, if you will, with strategies that are maximally effective for that person. Uh, so yeah. that's one of the thrusts of some of the research that, that we do today. You might, my daughter, when she was 12 or 13, did some science project at school on the adolescent brain. <laughs> and she learned how difficult it was to be. <laughs> this gave her good, great excuses for a while when she was being emotional, <laughs> well, um, impulsive. That she couldn't help it because she had an adolescent brain. <laughs> That's good. Well, that's, um, you know, it's probably true. Uh, how old is she now? Well, now she's 17, and actually I mm-hmm. think her her brain is in a much better place at this point. Mm. <laughs> um, well, there's, uh, yeah. you know, the, 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 the dilemma of adolescence is that puberty is occurring earlier and earlier, yet yeah. the rate at which our um, regulatory systems in the brain mature uh, has remained the same for thousands of years. Uh, And so uh, we actually have a longer period in human history today than we've ever had uh, between the onset of puberty and the onset of 
um, the, the full maturation of regulatory systems in the brain. So it's not just that it starts earlier, it lasts longer. Yes. Oh, it lasts much longer. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. We now have like a 10-year period. Uh, it's longer than ever before in human history. Hmm. So, you know, I know that you've been honored by the American Psychological Association, and I wonder, what what does your work, how does your work um, inform the work of psychotherapy, um, you know, it, it, are you learning things about actually changing the brain, about influencing the mind and influencing ourselves biologically with behaviors that might, I don't know, circumvent, transcend, or somehow enrich um, the ways we already know to work with who we are and how healthy we are and how we live well, you know, I'd like to believe that um, some of the work that we do may have some uh, implications or relevance uh, uh, for kind of on the ground, uh, in the trenches, um, psychotherapy or related strategies for behavior change in several ways. One is uh, a kind of meta level which helps a client or patient understand uh, that based upon everything we know about the brain and neuroscience, that change is not only possible, but change is actually um, the, the rule rather than the exception. Mm. And um, uh, it, it's really just a question of which influences we're going um, we're gonna to choose for our brain. But our brain is, is wittingly or unwittingly being continuously shaped right. um, by events around us and, and uh uh, we can take more responsibility for our own brain uh, by um, uh, cultivating uh, certain more positive kinds of influences. So that that's one thing that I think at a at a meta level could potentially be helpful. Uh, another thing, there, there there are three things here. Another thing is uh, the idea of practice. Um, the classical model of Western psychotherapy, which is you know, a client coming to a therapist for an hour a week for, right. you know, a 50-minute session um, uh, without doing daily practice in between uh, just is, uh, um, you know, flies in the face of everything we know about the brain and plasticity. That's really interesting, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, so if we, if we want to make real change, that's not a good prescription for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we want to make real change, uh, more systematic practice is necessary, in my view. And this is something that that comes directly from neuroscience. Um, uh, and I think that certain kinds of psychological uh, therapies are now understanding that. And so certain kinds of cognitive therapies, for example, do assign specific kinds of homework or practice for people to engage in on a daily basis. Uh, so I think yeah. there's growing recognition of that. And again, the the different focus that you're taking that we talked about at the beginning, that the focus that was different for scientists, but also the focus that's different from, oh, I, I think, psychology, psychotherapy, that it's focused on what's wrong and addressing that. Um, you're also, you're also. I mean, the practice would would be about uh, cultivating 
positive qualities, right? Not just remembering, recalling, delving that, that, into pain, pers- just alone. Right. I, I think that's very important. And I think that most people still don't think of qualities like happiness as being a skill, Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than uh, it's typically conceptualized as a fixed trait, and some people have more of it, some people have less of it. But um, uh, if you think about it more as a skill, uh, then it's something that can be enhanced through training. Uh, uh, and uh, fundamentally, uh, I, I, I think that the, the kind of mental exercise that we're talking about is no different than physical exercise. Right. Uh, and people understand that uh, they can't just do two weeks of physical exercise and then and be expect healthy. the benefits to to be to remain for the rest of their lives. Uh, and the same thing with with mental exercise. I was also thinking about you know when you talked earlier on that there were six emotional states and one of them was happiness. But mm-hmm. I think about a conversation I had with Mathieu Ricard, who's one of the people whose brains you've studied and who I think you learned a lot from talks about happiness, in fact, as a mental state that can precisely take in all emotions and experiences, in- including negative experiences, but can, it's, it's how you live with those, not a, f- a, a feeling that you have all the time. Right, right. And I think that that's a, uh, a very different conception of happiness, one that is a more enduring um, and uh, I think more genuine in the sense that it's a kind of happiness that is not dependent on external circumstances. Right, right, that can take in all whatever comes at you. <laughs> right, whatever circumstances. absolutely. I wonder how your definition, or not just your definition, your imagination about contemplative practice has expanded over the years. I know that I was listening into a, a symposium you had with about contemplative neuroscience with people from Abrahamic traditions. I also heard you talking about event, an event in India that you'd gone to where the Dalai Lama had called together people from different Indian spiritual traditions. I think what interests me is uh, clearly that there are contemplative strains that run through all the traditions. I, I'd be interested in interesting differences that you've encountered um, well, I think that uh, uh, there, um, uh, well, first let me say that the, the Dalai Lama has been very encouraging of, of us to uh, expand the circles of contemplative traditions that we interact with um, because of his belief that these kinds of questions and this kind of research is potentially applicable to all religious traditions that have uh, a contemplative strand or a contemplative component. Um, One of, and we've, in in the settings that you described, we've been actively trying to do that. Um, But one of the attractions, I think, of um, scientists to Buddhism, which is, why most of this work, I think, has focused on practices in the Buddhist tradition, certainly not exclusively, but predominantly, is because in the Buddhist tradition, um, there is uh, tremendously rich detail in the description of the mechanics of these practices and their um, putative effects. 
and so uh, uh, there is um, uh, just uh, 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 much more to sink one's teeth into in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, it's also the case that I think that w- I've heard um, all kinds of uh, interesting descriptions from other contemplative traditions. And um, I think that there is opportunity with a number of them. And I think that over the next um, few years, we will see an increasing number of scientific studies that are conducted on practices from contemplative traditions that come from other traditions beyond Buddhism. Some some people have studied the brains of monks, uh, Christian nuns and monks, I believe. Have you done that? Or were those other We people? have not. Mm-hmm. We have not. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, and, and there's a little bit of work of that sort, but not a lot. Okay. Um, you know, I, I moderated a conversation between uh, the Dalai Lama and three religious leaders at a gathering at Emory University that you also participated in something at that um, it was the chief rabbi of Great Britain, the head of the Episcopal Church, and the Muslim scholar, um, Syed Hossein Nasser. Um, something that I think comes up in conversations with b- between Buddhist uh, thinkers and, uh, see, say, people in these Abrahamic traditions, there's, there's more of an emphasis on the body. Um, it's kind of a creative tension, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember listening in on the Abrahamic session that you had um, you know, people wanting to talk about what it means to be in a human body, human embodiment. I just mm-hmm. wonder um, how you think about that and if your sense of, uh, of that, of the body-mind and uh, the importance of the body per se has, has shifted over time. Well, it's a very interesting question. I, certainly um, my understanding of... Uh, the quality of embodiment and the role that the body might play uh, uh, in contemplative practices, but more generally in uh, influencing the mind and the brain has certainly expanded over the years. Uh, And I would say it's largely expanded not so much through my contact with any contemplative traditions, but really through um, progress in, in, in our scientific understanding. Uh, there, there is a very vibrant uh, research um, uh, field uh, in uh, the biobehavioral sciences today on embodied cognition and embodied emotion. And what's meant by that is um, primarily looking at the influence of body states uh, on different kinds of mental processes. So, uh, like, what would be an example of that? Uh, what would be an example is for uh, the uh, a person's facial expression mm. or posture influencing uh, their uh, um, their language, literally right. uh, their their propensity for certain kinds of emotional language. Interesting. Um, yeah, we we did a study that we were part of very recently, um, where we studied individuals who. Uh, received cosmetic Botox injections, uh, right. which yeah, heard about this. Yeah. Uh, and that selectively paralyzes certain facial muscles. Uh, and um, based upon our understanding of embodiment, uh, if if <clears throat> if the facial muscles are inactivated, 
uh, and if embodiment ideas are really true, uh, then this should actually have uh, an impact on modulating the mind and the brain uh, in ways that uh, will affect um, certain kinds of mental processes. And, and what we found is that um, it indeed does affect uh, one's emotional language and the ability to uh, recognize certain uh, uh, emotional elements in language and producing certain emotional elements in language. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's very clear that... Um, but So that in body... this case specifically, that would be you can't furrow your brow, right? You can't frown. Right. That that has exactly. an effect on you emotionally. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. it does. But I think so. Uh, yeah. So I think that just the, this this work uh, uh, underscores the importance of considering the body, uh, and that's true for certain contemplative practices. It's it's not an accident that most contemplative traditions emphasize the importance of having a, an erect posture yeah. uh, when one is practicing. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is a little bit different, um, maybe not completely unrelated to that, but that, the, that uh, as you say, um, these contemplative, meditative, especially Buddhism in particular, this has, has emphasized over thousands of years investigating the mind. Um, whereas, for example, let's just take the Hebrew Bible, which is very much about human beings as embodied creatures, about f- physical realities and relationships and flaws and pleasures as as um, forming uh, the mind and the spirit and the life right so it's just a little it's a little it's a different emphasis yes um, different emphasis yeah. yes well I think that that's uh, uh, an important um, vantage point but I would say that it's um, the way you're describing it I think is a of a caricature of Buddhism because uh, certainly right. uh, uh, it's not just about the mind and, and a lot of suffering actually comes from mm-hmm. um, uh, from uh, craving and aversion yes. uh, which which really has a lot to do with the body um, uh, but you know that may be part of the point you're making uh, 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 so you know I think that uh, those are interesting ideas which which deserve to be unpacked yeah i guess i guess what i i i i, I absolutely that it's it i don't mean it to be a caricature but i i think that um maybe what i'm also pointing at is the limits i'm, I'm wondering about the limits of applying the experience of these meditative practitioners who who have actually gained incredible control um self-regulation in a way um to human lives that are very embodied and messy, right? The twenty-first-century lives um, in the world. Well, I think that uh, you know the messiness and the uh, the embodied nature of modern life uh, just provides uh, you know an enhanced signal for our attention in some sense, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I think that um, uh, it's quite possible to use. Uh, the opportunities that present themselves in our modern world uh, as um, as vehicles and prompts uh, for the continued development of, of kindness and compassion and equanimity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 
you know, I lead a very large lab and center, and um, you know, in many ways, my life is is has objective signs of extraordinary busyness and stress. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, in my better moments, I'm able to use that as, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity to uh, to for this all to be part of the practice. Right. Uh, it just it creates more opportunities for. Um, for uh, kindness and, and compassion. It creates more opportunities um, for um, uh, maintaining one's equanimity. Uh, and if you're able to do it in that kind of environment, you know, in, in uh, less challenging environments, it, it should be even easier. Right. I want to ask you this question as a, as a person, as a human being, as much as a scientist. I mean, as you have um, grown older, you know, how, how does the experience of aging um, change the questions you might be asking, uh, or how you take in some of the things you're learning in the laboratory? Well, you know, the experience of aging uh, has been for me a very positive one, uh, and it has been one that has, uh, I think, helped to focus and refine. Uh, my activities and interests, and uh, uh, I, um, you know, I feel uh, uh, more and more focused on the importance of uh, continuing uh, this work and, and continuing to do what I can to nurture this work uh, in other places, uh, because I feel that it uh, it has the potential of really making a contribution to. Um, uh, to human betterment. Uh, uh, and so uh, I've gotten less interested in, um, in some of the more uh, arcane peripheral questions yeah. which may have been more interesting to me 10 years ago. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I think my priorities have, have gotten clearer. Um, I wonder when you... You know, we talked about a book you wrote about the psychobiology of consciousness back in 1980. The distinction, I'm curious about the distinction you make between these terms, brain, mind, consciousness, and if that has changed over time. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's <laughs> a tough one uh, for so many reasons. Uh, you know, putting on my... Uh, Scientific hat, uh, the the certainly the view of mainstream modern neuroscience is that the mind and consciousness are uh, somehow emergent properties of the brain. Um, many philosophers refer to this as the hard problem because yeah. uh, we still have no idea how the uh, the subjective qualia of consciousness uh, actually emerge from the physical stuff of the brain. Uh, um, uh, and so many of us, myself included, bracket that problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we still can make progress on lots of other things without having to solve that problem. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, but I also straddle a number of different worlds. And uh, you know, I spend quite a bit of time uh, with the Dalai Lama, who has a very different view of mind and brain and consciousness, right. and uh, uh, has the view that, uh, at least in some residual form, uh, 
consciousness can exist without the brain. Uh, it may still be some form of, uh, of uh, energetic matter um, yet to be understood and determined, uh, but not, uh, the, you know, not the brain as we conventionally understand it. Uh, and, you know, the honest truth is I have no idea what to do with those kinds of okay. um, suggestions other than to uh, practice remaining um, agnostic and distinguishing between what is hard-nosed scientific fact and what is simply part of our conventional scientific dogma or hegemony. Right. And um, the Dalai Lama, in the beginning of his book, uh, on science and spirituality, the book uh, entitled The Universe in a Single Atom, says that if there's any tenet of Buddhism which is directly contradicted by scientific fact, that he's prepared to give that up. Um, but he makes a very clear distinction between scientific fact and scientific assumption. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but it, it takes a lot of active work to... Uh, remain uh, in the ambiguity of uh, not knowing. Right. I mean, you use terms when you speak and write about your work that, that, have, um, that are terms that also occur in theological and philosophical realms, you know, free will, transformation. Um, do, you think of, do you think of this, these, uh, do you use the term spiritual technology or, you know, are you familiar with that term? Is that is that something you might, a, a way you might talk about some of these tools and practices that you're using? Potentially. I, I don't think I've used that phrase, spiritual technology, but <clears throat> certainly uh, I have talked about the, um, the uh, uh, range of uh, practices, really the mechanics of practice that are so... Um, richly described in some of the contemplative traditions and the potential value uh, that many of these practices might have for uh, modern science and uh, our modern understanding of the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, I, I certainly, the, the idea of transformation is one that to me meshes perfectly well with uh, conventional scientific understanding. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, I, I have no problem with that, uh, and um, you know I think that uh, that really uh, is a natural byproduct of understanding many of these constructs as the product of skills that can be enhanced through training. But you know, uh, so just to that point, I mean, it occurs to me that name of your center is the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds, but but really these skills are skills for healthy lives right i mean you're you're actually talking about cultivating virtue yes uh, i think that's absolutely true we we are definitely talking about uh, healthy lives um uh, and uh uh it it could have been called the the center for investigating healthy lives <laughs> would that have felt less scientific though maybe well you know um uh i think the key to a healthy life is having a healthy mind. Mm. This is just my last question. Um, I wonder how what you've learned, discovered, what you know as a scientist, you know, again, kind of across time, I mean, how has that opened up um, your larger sense of what it means to be human? Maybe what new questions has it given you to work with? 
Well, uh, I think that it has, um, first of all, my scientific work has uh, reinforced and uh, uh, strengthened my personal commitment to my daily practice uh, where, you know, I, uh, in whatever uh, meager way I can uh, in my um, limited practice uh, and experience help to cultivate these qualities in myself because I see what a positive influence they can have for others around me and that the the best way I can... Um, I can mentor and lead those around me is to uh, uh, really um, uh, embody these qualities myself, uh, and so. Um, so when pra- when you say practice, you're not just talking about a, con- a meditative practice, but practices of living, right? Right. Y- yes, I, I mm-hmm. both formal and informal mm-hmm. practice. So part of it is a formal meditation practice on the cushion every day, mm-hmm. uh, and part of it is also um, a quality of uh, of remembering and um, uh, trying to bring to every encounter uh, with another person that that's an opportunity uh, 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 and um, uh, and and and. Uh, expressing gratitude and kindness uh, in, in each of those moments uh, out in the world. So again, if if you, you know, how you thought about what it meant to be human back in the 60s, 70s when you started doing this, um, how has this well, it's, opened that, changed that for you? Yeah, it's given me, I think, a much, um, I feel a much uh, richer and uh, more encompassing a sense of what it means to be human. I think that uh, uh, it has underscored for me the preciousness of every human encounter. Uh, and uh, I think that, you know, there was a time in my life where I took a lot more for granted and um, uh, and uh, I, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do my best to... Uh, uh, to to address each moment as that kind of precious opportunity, uh, and so my my sense of being human, I think, has been um, really uh, dramatically expanded. Uh, and at the same time, I think, you know, my sense of time has, in certain ways, really slowed down, so that mm. I can stop uh, and and look at each moment uh, and appreciate it for what it might afford. Um, rather than uh, uh, sort of rushing on to the next thing. I remember talking to John Kabat-Zinn about that, that, which is a very striking statement to make in 21st century ears, that by paying attention in a moment, you actually slow down time. Yeah, I think you radically slow down time. And and I think that, uh, uh, you know, one of the experiences that I think you have in meditation is the direct experience of of time really slowing down Mm. uh, because you can um, notice more things per discrete moment uh, because you're just more open. Uh, And and I think that leads to a a subjective sense of of time really slowing down. Okay. Um, Yes, just I have a question from behind the glass. 
Okay. Okay. So we we actually um, I guess they were t- my producers were tweeting this behind the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone asked on Twitter what the consequences of this practice can be for this uh, for multitasking this kind of way we live now. Well, you know, one question uh, uh, is whether we actually um, ever are truly multitasking in the sense of literally doing two things simultaneously or whether uh, we are rapidly oscillating um, between Mm. the things that we are doing when we're multitasking. But the the larger issue, I think, is is really just being present with whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, And so if if what we're doing is multitasking, you know, being present with the multiple tasks that are that are before us. Um, you know, I have a wonderful picture of um, <clears throat> Mathieu uh, Ricard. Uh, when he comes to Madison, he stays at our house, and he was um, sitting in the living room with a laptop computer on his lap, uh, looking at the computer, and uh, he was talking on his cell phone, uh, and uh, he also had a book right next to him, right. open, right. Uh, and it was um, you know, this wonderful. Yes, this wonderful picture of this Tibetan Buddhist monk who is, you know, our digital monk, um, and uh, uh, um, engaged in in multitasking. But you know, I think uh, doing doing it in a way which uh, was really quite present to uh, all of the various tasks in which he was engaged. So. Um, uh, that may not be a very satisfying answer, but I do think it's possible. I've seen, I've seen it in others. I've seen Matthew do it. I've seen the Dalai Lama do it. I think that's very hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the idea of neuroplasticity itself. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Richard Davidson. Thank you so much. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Okay. We'll let you know what's happening with this, too. Okay, great. Okay, all right. Take care. Thanks. Bye.